Well, as Joe said, uh, my name is Danny. I've got a label, um, but it was kind of falling off and uh, it was going to be distracting, but I'll put that on a bit later on. Um, but I wonder if you, I can ask you to open your Bibles at Psalm 1. Uh, we're going to read that in a moment, and uh, we're going to dip into Psalm 2 uh, also. Uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Someone got a page number? 543, five, thank you. 543. Well, the title, um, if you think about it, is a little bit offensive, isn't it? <laughs> Don't waste your life. A um, little bit controversial because if you think about it, um, who's to say that you're wasting your life? Um, who is to make that judgment? Um, is wasting your life something that you can decide to do? Do we have control over uh, whether we waste our life or not? Uh, who am I to stand up here and tell you, don't waste your life, and give you any advice about that? Because you'll notice the imperative in the title, don't waste your life. It is something we're actually sort of telling you not to do. Uh, so slightly offensive, isn't it? Slightly controversial. What is the justification for those assumptions behind the title. Well, the justification is a single truth that the Bible asserts clearly and repeatedly, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that truth is that there are just two ways to live in this world. There are two ways to live and two contrasting outcomes. We're going to see that in a moment, but that is actually a truth that we hear more on the lips of Jesus than anyone else. Just think about some of Jesus' most famous sayings. There are two roads. There is the broad way and the narrow way. Uh, there are two ways of building your house. You can build your house on the rock or you can build your house on the sand. There are the foolish or the wise. Uh, in Matthew 13, where we were a few, uh, for the last few weeks, we saw that really there are two kinds of soil. There is good soil and bad soil that produce two different kinds of fruit. There are wheat and weeds. There are good fish and bad fish. And so all through Jesus' teaching, there is this kind of binary reality. There are two ways to live, fundamentally two ways to live with two outcomes. And so when you tune into the teaching of Jesus, you're not listening to somebody who is offering a lifestyle choice. You're not listening to a philosopher who's asking you to think about a range of interesting ideas. You're not asking, listening to somebody who is talking about a range of different identities that we can adopt. When you tune into Jesus, he's talking about two ways of living in this world that cut across every other choice that you will make <coughs> and end in that great separation between the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the weeds, the good fish and the bad sheep, two contrasting outcomes. And when you listen to Jesus on those subjects, he doesn't say this with the cool detachment of a philosopher or the unbiased impartiality of the observer, but he says it with a passionate pleading of a friend and helper. Which way will you go? Jesus doesn't use these exact words, but the thrust of his teaching is, don't waste your life. It matters to get this right. And this basic binary structure to human life is also what we see in Psalm 1, 
And so let's read that psalm. If you've got it open, I'll read it and you follow it with me. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, let's look at this psalm under the three headings that you'll see uh, on the sheet. Firstly, it tells us to turn from the way of the world. Right at the beginning, and remember we're right at the beginning of this collection of 150 psalms, we're not told what to do, nor even told something about God, but we're given a strong warning. We're told to move away from certain people. Look at who he says they are, the wicked, the sinners, mockers. The wicked, sinners, mockers. Who are these people? Who is he talking about? You might be thinking, some of your flatmates, yes, I need to get away from them. I know who he's talking about. But who is he really talking about? Well, to answer the question, it's helpful to know that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 come as a kind of a pair of psalms. And we're meant to read them together and they sort of interpret each other. So the book of Psalms has a kind of a, a double introduction, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. How do we know that? Well, two clues. One is that you'll notice that at the beginning of Psalm 1 and 2, there's no little superscription. Uh, if you just turn over the page, um, you'll see that Psalm 3 and 4 and 5 all have little superscriptions, uh, little uh, indicators of who wrote them and so on. But Psalm 1 and 2 stand out because they don't. But there's another clue. Look at the beginning of Psalm 1 and the end of Psalm 2, and you'll see a, a word or phrase repeated there. Blessed is the man who... Psalm 1 verse 1, and then Psalm 2, 12, blessed are all who. So beginning with blessing, ending with blessing, the two Psalms are kind of packaged in that envelope. Now, why do I tell you this? Because the question of who are the wicked sinners, mockers of Psalm 1 is answered for us in Psalm 2. Have a look at Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. So the wicked sinners and mockers of Psalm 1, it turns out are the universal terms in the Old Testament for all of mankind in revolt against God. This is the description of humanity. In other words, the wicked sinners and mockers are not your flatmates, but they're you and I in our natural and very human rebellion against God. And so the wicked sinners and mockers, they're actually normal people. People who, in our heart of hearts, shake our fists at God and throw off his rule because we want to be free of his kingship. Now come back to Psalm 1 and notice in verse 1, those three phrases are used to describe a kind of a steady progression downwards. Do you see that? First of all, we're walking in the counsel of the wicked. 
and then we're standing in the way of sinners and then we're sitting in the seat of mockers and so you can see how this is describing a kind of downward progression of influence as whatever path we're on is is arrested and we're slowed down and we're suddenly stuck and we find ourselves sitting with the seat of mockers that is the ideas of the rebellious world have sucked us in and shaped our minds so that we think just like them and we can't get away it's almost an irresistible downward movement like have you ever been in a, a current or a river uh, maybe you've been in one of those kind of whirlpool things in center parks or something like that where you just kind of you just can't swim against it i had an experience like that on a holiday on a beach and my feet kind of just lifted off the, the sand for a little while and I felt myself, and I'm quite a strong swimmer, and I felt myself being washed out. There's nothing I could do to stop it. It was, it was pretty terrifying uh, for a few minutes. And this is what is being described here, this irresistible current of the way the world thinks, sucking us in. So we just think naturally and normally like everybody else thinks. And so he's talking about the anti-God world view that has immense power to shape our lives and therefore our destinies. Let me just give you two very quick practical examples. Two kind of uh, ways of thinking that I think have kind of just got into the bloodstream of our society, so much so that actually um, you have to be quite radical to kind of notice it. Feminism is the first one, feminism. Now this is one of those isms that has actually been so successful that I actually wonder why people still call themselves feminists, because they've actually won the argument. Now, there's a lot to feminism. There's a lot we could say about feminism. There's a lot of different strands, and it's been going for about 60 years now in our culture. But a couple of sort of things that feminists assume have really settled into our society. So to think differently is to really think quite radically differently. So, for example, the idea that to be a successful normal liberated woman you've got to have a career outside the home that actually choosing not to have a career actually choosing to stay at home and raise children that is a second rate and wasteful thing that that idea i think has just sort of gradually become the norm a normal way of thinking so that you hear people saying things like well i'm, I'm what are you doing well I'm, I'm just raising children and that word just is, is very indicative isn't it Another idea that men and women are exactly the same. We're just the same, but we have different bodies. Another idea is that a woman has a right to their body that trumps the right of the unborn. These ideas have just kind of gradually worked their way like yeast through dough into our society so that to say something different is actually quite radical. And that has all soaked into churches and Christian minds too because we are really cooked in this, like the frog being boiled in a pan of water, never quite notice it until it's too late. And so you will meet people as you uh, talk to other Christians from different backgrounds, you'll meet people who don't think the way the Bible teaches, but think the way the world teaches. Now here's the question, has that change in the way Christians and churches think about men and women has that change come because we have been looking more carefully at the Bible over the last 60 years? Or has it come because we've been listening 
to the world. We've been sucked into this vortex of the world. Second example, sexuality. Just imagine you're in your seminar, uh, first year seminar or whatever beginning of the new module, and for whatever reason, perhaps you're discussing history or politics or something else, and something comes up about sex and marriage, and you put your hand up and say, I'm a Christian and I believe that sex is exclusively for marriage. That divorce is a bad thing, that homosexual practice is wrong in God's eyes. That I believe children are better off with a mother and father. What would be the reaction in the room? Well, you may be laughed about. You may be cancelled. You may be told that you're being offensive. This is a safe space, you're not allowed to share views like this. But you'd almost certainly, I think, be held to be unbelievably naive, out of touch, maybe a little bit dangerous. Now, why is that? Why are those things that I just said that are so uncontroversial in the Bible so at odds with our culture? What is the sexual ethics of our culture? What is it basically? When you go back to your flatmates and you talk about these things, what, what is it that they think is right and wrong when it comes to sex. What values are they living by? See, the world does have values when it comes to these things. Our society actually has very strong values when it comes to sex. Think about people's reaction to Jimmy Savile or Harvey Weinstein or the Me Too movement. Well, let me uh, let what Miley Cyrus explain. She says, I'm really literally open to every single thing that is consenting and doesn't involve an animal and everyone is of age. Everything that's legal, I'm down with. Yo, I'm down with any adult, anyone over the age of 18 who is down to love me. I don't relate to being boy or girl and I don't have to have my partner relate to boy or girl. Now, I don't know how normal that is. I think it's fairly normal. What is her ethic? What is her value? What is her boundary? Well, it's that word consent, isn't it? As long as it's consensual and legal. In other words, as long as it doesn't cause harm to somebody else. Now, I want to ask you, what is wrong with that as a sexual ethic? What is wrong with having that as a boundary? Makes sense, doesn't it? In a way, in the way there is something that's right about it. It is wrong to do things to people against their will. It is good that Miley Cyrus has that boundary, isn't it? But think about it a little bit more, and you realise what a very thin and dangerous moral framework this is. See, it's not actually always wrong to make someone do something against their will, is it? We made our children do all sorts of things against their will, like eating green vegetables occasionally, and actually they did like those, but you know, going to school most days was against their will. But as parents, we took the decision that actually we were going to make them do something without their consent. And can you see, it would not be a big leap to argue that sexual acts with children without their consent would be justifiable on some ground or other. And if you don't think that is likely, then listen to the arguments for abortion. Killing an unborn child presumably is without their consent. 
but our society has convinced itself that that is okay. And so can you see where the Miley Cyrus ethic will get you eventually? It'll get you into a very deep amount of cruelty and harm. Now just think how vastly different this is from the biblical framework. I'm showing you this by way of example to see how different it is that sex is a gift from God between a man and woman for marriage, for stable families and intimacy and lifelong faithfulness. That bodies are made by God, that we're not designed like little kind of Lego people to kind of change bits around. That sex and sexuality are just part of our identity, that we can have fulfillment without sexual relationships and have single lives and so on. And so the Bible is telling us something vastly, vastly different to the world. That's the example that I'm trying to uh, use to make clear. And yet haven't these views also soaked into the church? I can guarantee over the next few weeks and months, as you chat to Christians from other backgrounds, you will come across people who do not share those basic views that I articulated before, who will think that you are strange if you think that homosexuality is sinful. Why is that? Why has that come into Christian thinking? Is it because we've been listening more carefully to the Bible for the last 60 years? Or is it because we've been caught up in this vortex of the world? So there's, there's just two examples. I could have picked a lot more, but I picked those because they're just in the air that we breathe. Two current examples of the counsel of the wicked, the worldview that the culture has rejected God. And remember that downward spiral, walking, standing, sitting, godless presuppositions, godless lifestyle, hardened cynicism that rejects God. And so you might be wondering, well, how does anybody come to think differently? If the vortex is so powerful, if we get sucked in so powerful, how, how does anybody think differently? Well, I don't know if you heard about the guy. This is a mental break, by the way, so enjoy this. Did you hear about the guy who was driving his car on the motorway and his phone rang? He picked up the phone and it was his wife and he said, darling, there's a lunatic on the motorway driving the wrong way. You've got to, you've got to get off the road. He said, I'm looking out the window. One lunatic, there's hundreds of them. It'll sink in if you don't get it. <laughs> Give it time. The point is, you've got to be like that man. You've got to do a U-turn on the M6 at rush hour. That's what it feels like. You've got to go in the opposite direction. You've got it. Well done. How do you do this? Well, verse 2. You do it by delighting in the word of God. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Notice three things. Firstly, notice the but at the beginning of verse 2. As you study Romans, watch out for those little words, the but. Very, very important to notice. But look at the but here. It tells us, doesn't it, that there are two ways to live. It tells us there's a contrast between being shaped by the world or by the word. It tells us that you can't have both. It requires a U-turn. It will feel like a U-turn on the M6 at rush hour. 
not walking and sitting with the world, not and glancing at the Bible, but actually turning to the Bible, making a completely different choice. That's the first thing. Secondly, notice that this person meditates on the word day and night. To most people, the word meditate means to empty your mind. By emptying your mind, you connect with Zen or whatever it is you want to connect with. Now, the Bible uses the word meditate quite often, but it means exactly the opposite. It means to fill your mind with the word of God. And that's why, as Joe has said already, we put this on. That's why we do Bible study groups. That's why we want you to be here all uh, every Sunday to commit to this, to fill your mind with the word of God. That's what we're going to be doing. But thirdly, notice what all this meditating on the law is about. It is not to fill our heads with interesting facts about the Bible, but it's to come to know God's Son, Jesus Christ. See, that word law is not just kind of moral instruction. When the psalmist used the word law there, he really means the story of salvation in the whole Bible. And at the heart of that story is the message of Jesus Christ. And how do I know this? Well, because look at Psalm 2 again. In contrast to the wicked who reject God, the blessed person is the one who takes refuge in the Son of God, the King who God sets over the nations, David first, and then David's descendant Jesus. Verse 10 of Psalm 2. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be ruled, you ruler, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what is the way of blessing in Psalm 1? To delight in the law of God that reveals the son of Psalm 2. This morning we saw Absalom kissing the people he wanted to get on board, but here we see an opportunity for us to kiss the true king, which means to align ourselves with him, to know him personally, to take refuge of him because he comes to us in this word that's why we do it the word that we read book of romans the whole bible reveals to us the character of god and that character is focused and comes to us in the form of jesus christ so as we learn the bible we're not learning facts we're learning a person we're learning jesus christ and Christians are not people who are captivated by a set of ideas, but we're captivated by a person. And that person comes to us in the words of Scripture. See, occasionally when someone wants to kind of criticise a church, they might say something, oh, the preaching of that church is, is too academic. I just want simple. And I can't really relate to that. Firstly, because I think we labour really hard to make things clear, but because it rests on an understanding that you don't need to think to understand God's revelation. See, God is big. God is very big and very complex. And if I want to understand God, I'm going to have to use my brain and think. Now, thinking is very hard to do, isn't it? You know what it's like when you've got an essay due the next day. Your sink is the cleanest it's ever been, isn't it? Your desk is the tidiest it's ever been, when you, because anything is easier than thinking. 
But thinking never actually hurt anyone. If I want to grow my understanding of God, I've got to think, I've got to listen to the scriptures. And that's going to take me the rest of my life because God is big. And when you get into the book of Romans, and if you're doing Bible over you, your mind is going to be expanded more than you can imagine because you're going to grow in your understanding of this very, very big God and his gospel. Well, last thing we're going to see then, what is the result of all this? Now, at the end of the psalm, we're given not an argument, but a picture. In fact, two pictures that reinforce each other by way of contrast. The first picture is growth and fruit. Verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Notice that the tree is planted. It is strong. It's stable. It's a very powerful image, isn't it? Go and hug a tree sometime. Go and lean on a tree. Go and, if you've grown up in a city, go and get to know trees a little bit. They're, they're very secure, stable things because their roots go down. And this tree is rooted in God because he's rooted in the word of God, which comes from God. And this tree is not going to fall over when the latest theological fads come or when someone criticizes what you believe or when suffering comes this tree is not going to fall over not only that but it's planted by streams of water and so not only is this tree stable and secure but this tree is growing through the inexhaustible supply of goodness and nutrients from God's word isn't that a great picture so you're planted in the right place but you're getting the right food because you're growing through the inexhaustible nutrients of God's word and then thirdly this tree is bearing fruit this fruit is the life that is produced through the word of God, through us. By their fruit you will know them, Jesus says. The tree that grows in dependence on the word of God is a tree that grows the fruit that God intends, the fruit of a transformed life, the fruit of a Christ-like life, fruit of repentance, changed minds and lifestyles, fruit of active service, of love. It's a beautiful picture of spiritual prosperity that lasts into eternity. And then fourthly notice its leaf does not wither. That is, bad things can happen to the tree. The tree will go through the winter storms, but the leaf doesn't wither. The tree keeps being fruitful through all of that. It's a picture of life as it was meant to be lived. It's a picture of God's people. It's a picture of you and I as we can be if we live through the word of God fresh, flourishing, fruitful don't you want to be like that? and don't you want to see other people like that? don't you want to see other people drinking in the word and growing like that? but that picture is contrasted with the alternative picture because there's two ways to live. So verse 4, not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Do you know what chaff is? Chaff is nothing. Chaff is the waste product of the harvest. It's just blown away. No fruit, no life, nothing lasting. And so a, a life that may have looked successful 
because it's been sucked into the vortex of the world's thinking, it comes to nothing. And verse 6, it's the final divine assessment that matters. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We'll turn over the page and we've got uh, three implications just uh, to conclude with. And these uh, are particularly, I guess, aimed at us right now at the beginning of a new academic year. Firstly, don't be a victim of this age. See, we do live in a particular time in history that has pulled the plug on 200 years of Christian thinking. Sorry, 200 years ago, pulled the plug on years of Christian thinking. We live at that moment when the last dregs of our Christian heritage are are girdling down the, the plug hole. So it is a particularly unchristian time in which to live, if you like. But Psalm 2 also tells us that it's normal. The nations have always been conspiring. The peoples have always been plotting against God. And so Psalm 1 is the passionate appeal of a friend not to be the victim of the age, not to be drawn in to the vortex, to do the U-turn. And this means making a conscious decision to jump from one stream to the other, to think carefully about where you get your ideas from. Do you get your ideas from the social media feeds, from endless YouTube videos, or from the Word of God? It's good just to think, where are my ideas coming from? That's not to say never watch those things or listen to those things, be aware of what's going on, but what am I allowing to shape my worldview? And why does it matter? This is a life and death business. This is about life and death, about heaven and hell. And so if you're wondering about how you're going to live over these next years and next few weeks and months, if you're not a Christian, you're wondering whether it's worth it. Well, this is telling you, you do have to make a decision at some point. You can't sit on the fence forever. And many students come to university from church backgrounds and they discover actually they don't really understand the gospel that well. They've been propped up by their parents' faith, going to church and just assuming that they know actually this is the time to sink in roots. Can I say, by the way, don't be embarrassed about that. Don't be embarrassed about what you don't know and what other people know. Much better to swallow your pride and say, actually, I'm not sure about this, but I want to be sure. And so take this time to find out. Go back to the foundations. Strip away the old foundations, replace them with new ones. And discover the brilliance of Jesus and the gospel for yourself. Don't be a victim of this age. Secondly, don't be satisfied with an education for this world alone. Don't be satisfied with an education for this world alone. See, you'll finish university different to how you began. You'll be £30,000 worse off, and you'll have a little bit of paper to to show for it. But you will be different. Now, how are you going to be different is the question. Well, if you're a Christian, what lies before you is a tremendous opportunity to grow. Have a look at Colossians 2, verse 6. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, 
rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See, you could spend the next three years learning lots of great things, and I hope you do, we're all for that. But listen to J.C. Ryle, who's writing this in the 1890s. He says, A man may be acquainted with the highest and deeper things in heaven and earth, He may have read books till he is like a walking encyclopedia. He may be familiar with the stars of heaven, the birds and beasts of the earth, the fishes of the sea. He may be a Solomon to speak of trees from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He may be able to discern the secrets of fire, air and water. And yet if he dies of Bible truths, uh, away from Bible truths, he dies a miserable man. Chemistry never heals a guilty conscience. Mathematics never healed a broken heart. Sciences never smoothed a dying pillow. Philosophy never supplied hope in death. No natural theology gave peace in the prospect of meeting a holy God. All these are of the earth and can never raise a man above death. They may enable a man to strut and fret this little season below with a more dignified gait than his fellow mortals, but can never give him wings and enable him to soar towards eternity. He that has the largest share of them will find at length that Bible knowledge he has got no lasting possession, because death will be the end of all his attainments, and after death his knowledge will do him no good at all. I'm sorry if your discipline wasn't covered. Engineering, you can just add it in. Imagine he, he said that astrophysics wasn't talking about that in 1890, but you get the idea. And university is a particularly t- good time, therefore, to grow as a Christian as well as growing in your particular discipline. To work out why you believe what you believe. To get to grips with the shape and story of the Bible. To develop a Christian worldview. To mature in the likeness of Christ and to get trained so you can help others to do the same. To become somebody who knows the book of Romans and Mark and the Bible so well that you can delight in it for the rest of your life and help others to do it. And so finally, thirdly, don't waste your life. I wonder if you can just think about yourself in five years time, or 10, or 20, or 30, or 40. Can you imagine yourself as an old man or woman having persevered, suffered for the gospel in a hostile world? The question is, are you going to do that? Well, it really depends on where you're going to sink your roots down. See, there is a trajectory, isn't there? If you're a thoughtless young woman, you'll end up being a foolish old woman. If you're a lazy young man, you'll end up being a useless old man. If you're a proud young man, you'll end up being an arrogant old man. If you're an unteachable young woman, you'll be an ignorant old woman. The trajectory is determined by the roots we sink down. But imagine the trajectory for those like verse 3 who have planted their roots in streams of living water which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. The fruit of the gospel. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of being rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now imagine that fruitfulness going on into eternity. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer, which you'll find on the uh, third sheet. And uh, this will be a great prayer just to take home and maybe stick in your Bible and uh, pray when you get home. But I'll pray it now and uh, help us uh, to make that decision to sink our roots into the word and therefore into God. Let's, uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I admit that I've not been living with Christ as my King, but have been living life my own way. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to die for me so that I may be forgiven and saved from your judgment at the end. Please forgive me. From now on, please help me to listen to him and to live with Jesus at the centre of my life. Amen. <laughs>